0: Everyone, welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is literally a last moment stream that was decided. I've been trying to talk to Razib for a while now, and it's just that the times don't match. Sometimes Razib is available, I'm not available. <laughs> so today I just took a call and I messaged him on Twitter and I was like, Are you free right now? He's like, Actually, I'm free. So I was like, Okay, let's get this
1: done. So, Razib, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. What's so, up, man? Hey, can I say something to the audience? Sure. Joy Sri Ram.
0: <laughs> all right, great. That's a great start to the podcast. So, Raziv, today we're going to be talking about multiple issues, but I want to start with this because this is something that we've been uh, actually having an offline discussion about a while on Twitter. This is, uh, and it's been bugging me. Now, obviously, you're an active scientist. I am someone who relies on mm-hmm. scientists and science all the time. Uh, so, COVID has been we don't need to tell people what covid is covid's yeah, been maybe. there for a while now and we've we've seen what has happened in the last 2 years and this is covid is a perfect case study for me to talk about this larger subject that we're I'm more interested in. And that is the role experts play in society. So let me lay it out for you. Now, I'm someone who's always said that expertise matters. In fact, I've always stood up for expertise that uh, it's not like you get a flat earther into a physics conference and say the flat earther's view is as valid as uh, everybody else in a physics conference. But then what happens is sometimes... The people inside the conference, uh, to use the right word, I, I always, my brother taught me this word. He's like, scientists also have to perform their dharma. And when the scientists forget what their dharma is, we get into problems. And uh, there was a very interesting book. I, and I think you also spoke to the author, if I remember correctly, or somebody else that I don't remember. It was, uh, it was Science Fiction's, the book. I don't know if you spoke yeah, to Stuart him. Yeah, Stuart Ritchie. Stuart Ritchie, right? Yeah. yeah. So so you also spoke with him and I read that book. And now now somebody can tell me that that's only pertaining to psychology, but yeah. that's not the point. Now, now, what has happened in COVID since the beginning to now, mm-hmm. especially with the lab leak hypothesis? Now, what do you think is wrong exactly uh, in the enterprise of science as of now? It's, look, because you're an active scientist. Although you're not part of academia, but you know what's happening inside. So, where do you think we went wrong, let's say, with the whole COVID bit?
1: Well, I mean, you know, hindsight's 50 50 right now. Um, I think part of it is uh, scientists, like doctors, um, they present authority. Uh, they're supposed to reassure, uh, they're supposed to calm. And COVID was something that was kind of out of the blue. Uh, it was. Was a black swan, or I guess Taleb would say it was a white swan, it was inevitable. But, you know, we didn't know when it was going to happen. It was part of the tail risk. Scientists were caught flat footed. Um, they pivoted, they pivoted hard. And then they had to be in a position where they gave people advice. Now, are you going to tell someone that your advice is provisional, or do you just go whole hog so that you have your authority, you know? And the people in government, they want you to give incontrovertible. You know, really strong recommendations. So that's what scientists, I think, do a little too much. Then there was the whole dimension of Trump administration and the hatred of scientists for Trump as a human being, or the entire liberal intelligentsia of which scientists are an integral part. So if Trump said um, this is up and this is down, they would say, "Well, I never." You know, I mean, there's just kind of a reaction to do everything the opposite. And so when Trump was favorable towards, say, Lab Leak, they were going to go in the other direction. Um. What I'll tell your listeners, viewers, uh, I think I've said this in the podcast before, but uh, I'll say it again. It's been a while. We haven't really talked since the summer of 2020 at this point. Um, in March of 2020, I was in a Zoom chat with some geneticists, evolutionary geneticists, and one of them who had worked with pathogens told me he believed it was lab leak, and his PhD advisor, he was a professor now, also believed it was lab leak. One of the other scientists shushed him. And the reason is it was like you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. You don't want to feed into the paranoia. But um, this is what I'll say. Virologists do seem to agree that it is almost certainly to be natural. But I can tell you privately a lot of evolutionary geneticists seem to disagree. Um, so what what's going on here? It, it is a viral epidemic. So, you know, you want to listen to the bio, virologists, right? But the problem is it's also an evolutionary question. So you want to listen to the evolutionary geneticist. Ideally, you'd have someone who's a virologist and an evolutionary geneticist. So there are some of those. But they're not that many, really. A lot of the virologists, um, they're not evolutionary scientists, really. Um, You know, they study the mechanism, the molecular biology of the viruses, uh, pathology, all these sorts of things. Whereas the evolutionary geneticists, they don't necessarily work with viruses. They don't have the domain-specific knowledge. And so it's a situation where I feel like – and I don't want to make a parallel. There isn't uniformity in evolutionary genetics. And, you know, a lot of these pe- a lot of experts, they don't really know much about a particular field. Like, I mean, how many of these guys are coronavirus experts, right? So um, everything has to be provisional. And there's, there was a disciplinary. I think there is right now a disciplinary disagreement. I think the virologists are actually, on the whole, uh, believers in the natural spillover. And I think a lot of evolutionary geneticists that I know uh, are much more skeptical of that um, from evolutionary principles, how well adapted it seemed, how this virus seemed to be humans, and also just the general prior that there are a lot of lab leaks. The biologists will say, well, most of the pandemics, except for like the 1977 flu, uh, seem to be from animals and whatnot. So um, you can spend weeks and weeks digging through this and not come to a final conclusion. I think we're still in uncertainty. And I think the bigger issue at this point is the unanimity that was presented until recently, which was always a facade
0: yeah so uh, so this is the problem right rajiv so let's assume that science based uh, science is always about consensus right so uh, it is al- uh, it is always the truth in science is not like the truth in religion there is a difference in what a scientific truth is and what a religious truth is a religious truth is just uh, too much of a leap of faith while in science it is based on probabilities and this is the most probable result a- and if there is new evidence we will change our mind Now, in a situation like this, when people who are scientists or who are experts who are in the public eye, they start making statements about, oh, no, this or or they start presenting a scenario where there is a consensus Mm -hmm. when actually the situation on the ground is far, far away from a consensus. What are the potential damages that are we looking at? to the scientific enterprise. Because today, what happens is uh, we have to understand, Raz, if not everybody is going to sit down, read a scientific paper, go through so many things, and try and decipher you know, everything. They're not going to do that. They're going to rely on authorities, on people anointed by society to tell them what is true or not and when something like this comes out and then we find out that actually there was not really that much of a consensus on the leak hypothesis but people were scared to talk about it because they thought their reputation will get damaged or they might lose their job then it shows a very different side of the scientific enterprise where it is more politics and less science how do we fix that then
1: yeah, um, so conformity is a big deal. Peer, peer approval is a re- big deal. In most cases, it's not about job loss. It's about being ridiculed, being made, made, made fun of, uh, being accused of as conspiracy theorists, all these things, right? That's what's motivating people. How do we fix it? I don't really have a good solution um, with the American system. It's based on government funding and grants and this whole cadence of uh, funding that comes in and out of laboratories. Uh, I think one way to fix it would just be like end it and rebuild from scratch. You know, it's just like the system is calcified. Um, there's too much back grabbing. There's too much like political um, just like um, ingratiation with each other. You know, I think, that, you know, the idea with the lab leak and one reason the lab leak was promoted so much um, was that there was a charismatic group of scientists who argued for it. And other people were like, ah, it's just, you know, if I say something, they're going to accuse me of being a xenophobe and a Trump supporter. So why would you do that? Um, so it's much safer not to say anything because, you know, they want to be safe. Um, science is supposed to be a heroic enterprise, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's much safer now. And the whole idea of heroic enterprise, maybe they'll call it toxic, toxic masculinity. I don't know. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's where we are in terms of the whole institution has been deformed uh, by campus politics, broader American politics, been totally pardons, part of most made partisan and polarized and I, I don't see a way to reverse that i think cats out of the bag i think we need to think of the replacements to the academic system at this point
0: no that's very interesting so so the key factor here and i notice an exact parallel over here in india uh with modi sometimes it, it, till the extent that i've joked at times that if modi starts saying gravity is real somebody might start questioning gravity itself i mean that that's how polarized the world is. world has become what was the big deal if trump said it I mean, how does it matter tomorrow if Trump would have said vaccines are real was the entire progressive left going to become an anti-vaxer?
1: If Trump said vaccines are real tomorrow and he has promoted vaccines no one's going to report on it um, because it doesn't fit with the narrative The issue is they didn't want Trump reelected they don't want to be seeing supporting Trump they don't want to be seen validating him as a non-crazy person okay. so um, that's the issue and a lot of people convince themselves. So
0: that, so that shows that, well, the experts are not just, you know, unbiased. And and if that is the case, and we know that for a fact, and you made a very good point that the old, uh, you know, the old systems are now rotting and they've just become too, too rigid and too to ideologically inclined. And uh, this applies to uh, as much as the on the right side of the aisle, as much on the re- left side of the aisle. I think everybody has confirmation biases. That's that's not the case where we only look at the scientific results that suits our worldview. I mean, that, that's just human nature. And it's, it's very common to do that. But the point is in a scenario like this, and how do we work around it? I mean, I remember recently there was this handle from India who was and this, this kid, I think his Twitter handle is at The Seeker or something. And he was writing incessantly on the league Hypothesis. And eventually a lot of things that he wrote was picked up. And this guy is just an outsider sitting outside looking at mm-hmm. the evidence and doing things that. So do you think then the future of the scientific enterprise in that case is independent people who cannot be muzzled by the establishment? Uh, because the establishment is totally ideologically inclined. So, so uh, today it could be the left and COVID and masks and a lot of things. Like, I mean, I, I I was just surprised when Dr. Fauci was like wearing a mask when he was fully vaccinated. And then he later on made a statement. No, no, I was just signaling. I mean, since when did signaling matter? Just stick to the evidence. People will listen to you. Most, the, the, the underlying assumption is that people are stupid, but most people are not stupid. They, 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 there is enough data out there that the, the masses are not that stupid. You know, they, they follow the, the most common sense view. Now in that scenario, yeah. how do we go work out? So do you think the future is independent people looking at data, looking at results, looking at studies, and then maybe coming up, uh, in
1: that sense? Um, some of it, some of it, you still need big science. You still need institutions to do some things. And I don't know how that's going to be replaced, um, but I think the institutions are rotting all over the place. And I think it's just natural life cycle of, of cultures. And um, I think you know we're at the position of necrosis, of exhaustion, and I can't see a way of like, actually fixing it, mending it. Uh, we need to tear down and rebuild. And um, you know maybe that might cause some issues for a couple of years, decades, I don't know. Um, this might be a long-term project. But um, I think COVID has illustrated the weakness in Western academia, which is there tends to just be too much conformity you know people people don't get punished for being wrong uh in one direction but they do in the others you know so all the people that said well they the british variant and you know it's not going to evolve it's not going to mutate well it did twice three times four times into more mm-hmm. deadly variants you know or it's not going to like spread in the united states well it did it's going to spread in the united states oh well masks are bad uh well actually they're good you know there's there's all sorts of uh back and forth and they're diminishing their own authority and they don't even know it yeah so in in a scenario like this
0: what i've understood is science needs a lot of funding and the funding usually comes from larger institutional donors or the government itself yeah and if the government is going to behave the way it has in COVID, and not just in America, Razav, in India, it has been atrocious too. I mean, the, the messaging in India is all over the place. It has nothing to do with the Modi government. It has to do with each and every state government. I mean, we have weird things like night curfews, as if COVID suddenly becomes relevant at after 9 p.m. Nowadays, in Maharashtra, we have this uh, thing where after 4 p.m., everything has to shut down because COVID suddenly becomes active after 4 p.m. These mm-hmm. are not scientific uh, decisions. These are decisions where the government has to be seem to be doing something Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. every time the government pretends to be doing something and they use the word science they actually destroy science right
1: yeah i mean i just say this what i said to you in this house we believe in science okay we believe love has no boundaries uh (laughs) we believe black lives matter no (laughs) so um the problem is, you know, people view science as a, as a mantra, as a slogan. Um, I, I, sorry, I apologize if the mantra is offensive to your viewers. Oops. American here. Um, but uh, it's, it's a slogan. It's um, just a thing to repeat, to just show how cool you are, how smart you are. But science isn't, they don't understand it's a process. It's not facts. It's the way to achieve facts. And so, um, you know, people get one set of facts and they get super into it and they get a d- different set of facts and they just, they get super into it. They're not actually paying attention to the facts. They just want the validation of having elite opinions. And so, um, that's kind of the issue with science right now where it's just a bunch of elite opinions. Um, they're using it to justify their ideologies. They don't care about the truth. I mean, it's not all science, but it's a lot. They don't really care about the truth. They care about the jobs. They care about their social prominence. Um, they care about being not Socrates, you know, and having to you know, be expelled, killed from his own community. So um, I think a lot of it's just conformity. Yeah, but here's the problem, right? We get there are
0: problems within the scientific enterprise. And this is what worries me the most, is that it is still the best game in town to decipher the truth and to understand our reality and what surrounds us. Now the problem with a situation like this is when, when you see videos of Fauci flip-flopping, or you you see the CDC saying one thing and the government behaving like another, you see something doing X and something doing Y. People start losing faith in the enterprise, and this is when even a, a far more worse way of understanding truths.
1: Mm-hmm. Is well, I mean, yeah. So religion. Yeah, well, here in the United States, all all belief in institutions has been declining monotonically over the last like fifty years. You know, military, religion, other to various degrees. Scientists um, scientists had a good rep for a while until recently. I think that will drop partly because they've been really polarized, really ideological, and partly because they. I mean, COVID vaccines are a miracle. Okay, um, scientists were saying it wasn't going to happen for years. It happened. There's a bunch of vaccines economists thought that it would happen because they looked at the economics of drug development and how much money would be thrown into it. But in any case, neither here nor there. Science does great things. It did great things for the United States. It still does great things for the United States. Uh, but the problem is a lot of scientists are no longer doing science. They're doing activism. And that's just not sustainable. You know, If you have to pick between that, well, that yacht because your taxes are low or not having to worry that your kids are going to be taught critical race theory in the schools – you know, for the long haul, you got to think about more than the, your economic self-interest in this case. Yeah. But now that we are, that, now that you've mentioned critical race theory
0: is you see scientific journals like nature, scientific American, just, I'm just taking names as an example. These yeah. are institutions, not, not just magazines. They were institutions. We, we would rely on them that, you know, if something gets published in these, these magazines it carried a lot of weight and when they start using this critical race theory jargon and they start coming up with weird things which have nothing to do with the truth yeah. and which have nothing to do with my life or yours mm-hmm. then then the question goes back to who's going to replace them so is the future where independent scientists I'm not saying Brett Weinstein is the right model or the wrong model. I'm just using mm-hmm. that as an analogy. Let's say independent academics or scientists like Brett, Brett and Heather, they leave uh, their jobs. Obviously, they were also victims of the critical race theory jargon, but they come up and then we have a scenario where independence like you're not doing it with your own sub stack, which I've subscribed to mm-hmm. now. Is that the future then where more and more experts and more and more scientists actually start their independent fields and they kind of have this cross pollination where one
1: scientist is subscribed mm. to 10 other scientists' substacks? And is that the future then? I mean, there's definitely a future for some of it, I think, to be frank. Um, I think the main issue is collaboration in science can be sometimes really close and it's kind of hard to do outside of these current institutional frameworks, but I think we'll figure it out. We have to figure it out. Um, I just don't think that there's any other possibility now because. Um, you know, the public trust in science has declined. I'm pretty sure it has earlier, but I'm pretty sure it has now, partly because it's so polarized, so ideological. The whole enterprise, um, uh, you know, we've seen people flip on a dime and still remain self righteous. You know, and I think people remember that; they'll remember that, and it's going to be a huge problem proceeding into the 2020s. You know, which is fine because we're the greatest country in the world, and we will be forever, and we have no rivals. <laughs> hey, you know what yeah, you saying? guys
0: give- Freedom and democracy,
1: yeah. We're <laughs> the, end of the free home of the brave. That's what we are,
0: yeah. So.
1: Yeah, so, so, so
0: now I want to segue into something which I'm worried about the role that big tech has played in the edifice of science. Now, I get when scientists say something, but when big tech starts censoring views that are not what they think is scientific how much of of that harms science and the scientific enterprise in your view it harms it a lot because
1: um it's about openness trust and not manipulating you know scientists should admit when they're wrong (laughs) you know they should all these weird social norms of not cheating admitting when you're wrong they keep science going and if it becomes like Anchored down by the critical race stuff and all these like um, extraneous needs, it's going to cause some serious serious issues uh, in how science is run, how science is perceived, and how the academy is perceived in general. So right now, I think they're they're planning to shut down University of San Diego's art history department. You know, and so it's just like people are sick of this. They're sick of. They're sick of like all this uh, academic stuff, the jargon, the framework. Instead of being just one kid, it's like three or four kids in a family. It's everybody in the area. And, um, you know, we we live in a very, very uh, disparate, uh, unorganized society right now. Yeah. All right.
0: So now I wanted to segue this into something that I actually wanted. The, The original decision to do this podcast started in when you had written that piece in 2019 mm-hmm. which i really liked it was out of africa i think that was the one right you wrote on uh, your gene expression blog right
1: mm-hmm. That one mm-hmm. if i remember correctly so yeah.
0: I, I really wanted my viewers or listeners to actually get an idea about the whole out of africa theory so if you could could mm-hmm. you tell everybody what is the out of africa theory and how that theory has changed over the years and what are the new sets of Mm -hmm. uh, facts and what is the new evidence that kind of makes us revise the out of Africa theory a little bit? Because you mentioned a lot of it in your blog, Uh, by the way, I've shared it in the description too. All
1: right. So here's several things. Um, First thing is, you know, 30 years ago you would think, okay, out of Africa, there was like a pulse expansion of one small tribe into the whole world, including in Africa. And this was like happened 60,000 years ago, hundred thousand years ago, whatever. Right. Um, okay. Now we know that doesn't work. Um, uh, we have to do, we have to complicate it a lot. One model is that there's a population on the edge of Northeast Africa and Arabia that's isolated for tens of thousands of years, maybe like 100 to a 1, thousand people. Um, And this population expands across the whole world outside of Africa. It's the ancestor of Eurasians. That's why Eurasians are so genetically homogenous. Within Africa, that doesn't hold. Like, there's migration back into Africa. But um, basically, it doesn't look like there was as intense of a rapid radiation within Africa. Africa had a lot of different modern human populations. Most of the history of the human species has been in Africa. Like, the modern human species, right? Not Not Neanderthals or something like this. Um, and so, in Africa, there's a lot of variation that needs to be checked, but it means that our simplistic model of an out of Africa that just was one and done is wrong. Um, and the time depth for humans in Africa has gone further to the past. The Itarian um, culture, Jebel Hurhud in Morocco, go back like 350,000 years. They have, you know, quasi modern features. Modern features are definitely present by like 200,000 years ago. Uh, and so you have a situation where Africa has all these modern humans but they're not like bursting out, you know? And then something happened six hundred, sixty thousand years ago. They just swept across everybody. Um, and so the main issue with the out of Africa today is people are still trying to figure out where the primary human branch started in. There's an assumption of admixture. There's an assumption that we mixed with another non-human pro- humanoid, uh, like, you know, like um, like admixture and intergression in Neanderth- of Neanderthals and Denisovans outside of Outside of uh, Africa, there's also stuff going on in Africa, but we just don't have that many genomes, right? And so uh, it's just gone from simplicity to complications. So simplicity 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was like, we are all descended from one tribe of Africans that expanded 60,000 years ago. That's it. The alternative is what I just told you, which is super complicated. Well, it didn't happen in Africa. It happened maybe on the edge of Africa or right outside of Africa. It only applies to populations outside of Africa. Within Africa, there's lots of different populations that are evolving simultaneously and through gene flow or becoming human. You know, I could say something like that, but that's a lot to throw at you. You know, um, we don't have a really good paradigm yet. So so if I was to say that when I,
0: when I listen to this and I say that there could be a remote possibility that there there were different tribes from africa going out at different tribes times and settling in in different parts of the world while simultaneously there were people entering africa at the same time i remember in your blog you you talk about <clears throat> the 50000 year period right that that was a pivotal moment in in the out of africa hypothesis time now why is that period so important so so that we maybe we want to explain that too
1: so around 50 to 60000 years ago um uh, from what I understand from archaeologists, there is like the expansion of new technology mostly into southern Asia first. Um, and then it expands into Europe by about fifty thousand years ago, forty five thousand years ago. They got to Australia by like forty nine thousand years ago. So there's a new technology, a new technology is expanding, and so people suspected that something happened here. Now we have the DNA, and the DNA is just showing that all non-African populations are really homogenous. They're very similar. Um, they share like equal relationship to Africans. And so what's going on here? Well, it's because they're all descended from this small group, you know, a hundred and a thousand people. And so they expanded all over the place and that's a story outside of Africa. Within Africa, you have a different story of like local populations expanding in situ, um, evolving in situ and just kind of synthesizing and hybridizing. And that's another way that primates can speciate or not speciate, but um, the adult population structure. And there's a finding Jebel Hood in Morocco, which is 350,000 years ago, which clearly shows modern-ish tendencies in the skull. Some Neanderthal, mod, like some modern. And this is, seems like it's a real skull. It's not a put-on. It's not like Piltdown Man or anything like that. Um, so there's just so much to find out. We still don't know about the non-human species in Africa that seem to have mixed with the humans. We just don't have the ancient DNA. Um, the far north, it's very, very cold. Uh, DNA does not degrade; it does not denature. This is not true in Africa, right? So there's some technical hurdles. They'll get through it, but um, I think this is going to be really interesting to figure out what humans did for those two to three hundred thousand years in Africa. So, so,
0: so, what could, so, what is your hunch? What, what could be the outcome based on the current genetic analysis that could happen? Do you think any drastic
1: changes in our current understanding as we as we stand or as of now? No, I don't think there's drastic changes. Like, what's happening now is, like, changing time scales, changing the pulse, how many Neanderthal mixtures there were. But um, I don't think there's going to be drastic changes. I think there will be, like, some hominin here and there that's gone extinct that shows up in modern human DNA, and it might have been through some, like, third-party human population. Who knows? Um, but in general, it's I think it's pretty simple outside of Africa and complicated in Africa um, in terms of how we can understand – uh, the dynamic that occurred. So in Africa, it's basically like this broad metapopulation that's engaging in gene flow, just like modern populations. Um, and then outside of Africa, it's still dominated by Eurasian hominins, and only in the last 30, 30, 60,000 years have we kicked butt and just, you know, moved everyone out of there. I'm being, I'm being polite.
0: <laughs> yeah. So now let me get into the subject that. Everybody wanted us to talk about, but we never talk about. Okay, mm-hmm. so but I'm gonna focus this more on your Substack because I'm subscribed to your Substack. So, so one of the largest things that you write about all the time in your Substack is the Step Eurasian folks, right? Yeah. If, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so to, to for common parlance. Now, my first question to you is: Why this love for Step Step Eurasians?
1: My last name's Khan. I mean. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, uh, I should you know I should do you know it's like my last name's Khan, but no, um, it's because I, I've been interested in the step because I believe it explains a lot of human history, but it's never talked about because it didn't have a literate indigenous tradition, you know, and so it's kind of written up from the perspective of the outsider. So imagine that all you knew about India uh, was from newspapers in Karachi. Mm-hmm. That's what we know about the step. The people yeah. they conquer, the people they oppress, like Genghis Khan, the Scourge of God, although he kind of was the Scourge of God. But, you know, all of these things, um, Attila the Hun, also the Scourge of God, all of these step individuals, they don't, really, they don't really come into focus on their own terms. They come into the focus on the terms of others, on the, on the, on the terms of civilized, civilized um, populations, you know? And I want to bring like a more objective viewpoint and, you know, familiarize with people. So for example, ancient DNA in particular is telling us fascinating things where we didn't know before. Herodotus said the Scythians came out of uh, Central Asia. And now we know that Scythian samples, um, they seem to have emerged in the Altai region um, through some admixture with East Asian group, um, maybe about like 3000 years ago. And they just expanded everywhere. Like maybe like 10, 20% East Asian, not majority, you know? Um, and that is the ethnogenesis of Scythians. Now we know, we know Herodotus was kind of right. Um, that's where we're at with this sort of thing. Uh, the step has a lot of DNA because it's cold and it's relatively dry. These are excellent conditions for DNA. So there's be a lot of DNA coming out in the next couple of years. So here's the interesting bit about the, the
0: folks that came out of from the step is because they have... Probably they've left, the, if I was to say they left the largest imprint in, on modern cultures, well, would that be a unfair
1: thing to say? Or would that be a fair thing to say? It's hard to judge. I mean, I estimate 850 million people in the world. Uh, there are 850 million Yamnaya walking around in the world genetically. I just did the multiplication by the numbers and stuff like that. That's a lot, you know. Uh, probably there were like 10, 30, 40,000 Yamnaya 5,000 years ago. And they have almost a billion um, a billion of them walking around if you multiply out, oh, it's like sixty percent Lithuania, it's twenty percent in Punjab, blah blah, blah, you multiply that out with the absolute values, and you, that's how I got the number. I got like the raw number of uh' I think it was like yeah 850 billion or yeah, no 850 million, okay, so not quite a billion, but you know, it's a substantial proportion of the world population.
0: Yeah, and uh, the interesting bit is that this one population has caused the maximum amount
1: of hero in India. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, you know, so I understand how, um, oh, uh, what was this guy's name? I, I want, uh, I'm not going to use, well, you know, I'll use this example. Abhijit had a better example, but Abhijit Mitra, I uh, Mitra, you know, I'm not going to say I Mitra, he's Mitra to me. Um, so uh, you know, um, so, you know, what could have happened is you have these step guys and they're like chariots. They come, to the, come into the um, Indian subcontinent and they go to some village. They jump off their chariot and they start doing a dance. And they're just like really sexy. You know what I'm saying? And so it's the Aryan sexiness theory, you know. Um, you watch Bollywood. Um, imagine like a Ritik Roshan looking guy, you know, jumping off a chariot gallantly, maybe running around the village a little bit. And then some, you know, Indus Valley Civilization woman comes out with the vessels on her head and she's like, whoa, you're sexy. And then she starts doing this. And the guy's just kind of <laughs> like, you know, going like this, you know, and uh, one thing leads to another. And, you know, what happens in the field stays in the field, you know? So I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's just a hypothesis. I mean, I, you know, like I'm, a, I'm just a simple geneticist. I'm just looking at like where the DNA is. I can't tell you exactly how it happened. Um, in Europe, we can kind of come really close, and I'm working on a piece from my substack about the plague. It looks like plague really destroyed Northern Europe Neolithic societies right before the steppe invasion. It looks like the plague, Bionic Plague, was from the steppe with the Marmot hosts, and so the steppe was probably hit hard first, uh, like the Mongols were hit hard first, and then it moved westward into Europe. And once it westward, moved westward into the world, Europe, those societies collapsed, like the steppe people just came in and they wiped them out, um, at least the males in particular. And there's there's actually uh, evidence at several sites in Germany of conflicts, Germany and Poland, of some conflict as there was a transition from the funnel beaker to the corded ware, the single grave cultures.
0: Yeah. So here's the interesting bit, because I've read the archaeology in Europe personally. So in case of Europe, everywhere where the steppe people went, there was a clear... Spike and change in the archaeological culture, as they say in archaeology, you know the way they judge. Uh, there are two, three ways, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, if I've understood this wrong. Uh, how do you know uh, where the entry of one population over the other population has been smooth and just gradual, where the where the uh, new population coming in just assimilates? Is the 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 change in the archaeological culture? It's very gradual. That happens usually when there is no forced invasion or forced uh, imposition. Secondly, you don't find any mass graves or see any graves of conflicts where you know, you have skeletons with spears in their head or you know people punched or broken bones and stuff like that. Now, in the case of the two places that you've mentioned, there are clear evidences in the archaeology where all these things happen. There is a certain spike in the archaeological culture and stuff like that. But here's the problem, Razib when you talk about archaeology in India, and I've read the archaeological culture uh, sufficiently in India, there is no such thing happening in India. So how do we make,
1: um, uh, you know, we kind of work around that then? Uh, So uh, what David Wright says um, about this sort of thing, you know, I don't know, is sometimes the archaeological impact of cultures is minimal. So there are culture, there are DNA gene flows in Europe that you see that have no archaeological impact that we know of. So for example, there was a flow out of um, Eastern Anatolia about like 2,500 years ago into the Aegean. Um, that was actually like never hypothesized. Nobody understands what is going on there. Um, I can give you other examples. I think the issue with the step is um, people, why there's not an archaeological perturbance. My most plausible explanation is uh, these are pastoralists, uh, you know, Slashenberg agriculturalists. I don't think they had a complex archaeological, um, you know, you, ha- you, you actually, um, you have a, uh, you know, I know that you're subscribed to my podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, receive.substack.com for the Indian listeners, but um, uh, if you listen to uh, and they can go to um, unsupervisedlearning.lipson.com. Uh, I ungate all my podcasts after two weeks, and if you listen to Mallory, actually Mallory Christiansen and David Anthony about the step, one of the things that I realized is uh, in Europe, the corded where the first step society in north central europe they barely show up they don't have any they don't have very many material remains at all so mallory is basically saying the late neolithic societies had like these complex material remains um the earlier they had these longhouses uh they have obviously the megaliths you know so they have these massive material remains um they have villages you know when the steppe people show up when the corded ware dna shows up all they got is burials the reason they talk about burials single grave culture, you know, the Yamnaya Kurgan culture. Again, these are burials, right? Is, that's all they got. Um, there's nothing else going on. There's no villages, there's no nothing. So what happened? Barbarism, fall of Rome. Uh, societies had devolved back to like a very, very primitive agro-pastoral estate. It took thousands of years for them to get back to where they were, uh, in my opinion. I think something similar is probably the most plausible case in India. The Indus Valley civilization collapsed. Um, already before the steppe people had arrived, if not in totality, to a great extent. And, um, you know, cities got smaller, populations scattered into the rural areas. And, um, you know, they integrated with the people that were there. But basically, um, if you had concentrated uh, concentrated uh, towns with cemeteries and stuff in the middle to late, middle to late Bronze Age, it would be easier. But it, that's kind of difficult to find, I think. Um, it takes a little while for India to, like, come back up uh, to that level of uh, social complexity by about 500 BCE, it had. Um, but you know, that whole period between 2000 and 1000 is like pretty difficult um, in terms of density. Well, maybe 1800, 1700, right? To, to about 1000 uh, when the late the Indus finally kind of uh, collapsed. So I think um, that's my explanation. But like I said, um, I only know the genetics. Um, it could be that what you had is uh, uh, sexy Aryan chariot warriors uh, that came. They saw, they did the deed, and they left, you know. And that way, they wouldn't perturb the archaeology because, you know, the women are still in the village, their customs and their folkways, and everything like that. And like you know, they just got a, they got a little, a little, a little Rashan donation. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh.
0: So everybody knows uh, uh the the one bollywood actor Razib knows is Hrithik Roshan because he yeah. keeps sharing <laughs> he keeps I don't
1: really sharing know I don't, I don't know any Amita Bachchan, I know but he's a little older I'm sorry guys I'm coconut you know I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't my my lexicon of brown things is small yeah so
0: so this obviously this is a very interesting subject, and this is something that I've been obsessed with about ten years. As someone now, I was someone who was firmly in the Aryan migration camp, and and then when I my my mind changed, I mean I don't know I'm agnostic now. Uh, is when I read and analyzed the Rigveda. Now the Rigveda was a very different text from what people wanted it to be, and it was a mm-hmm. very uh, uh, there are many occasions, right? David Anthony, I've read him three times now. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for David Anthony. But the point is, again, you know, I, I see this happening a lot of times in, in the writing of Western Academia that, you know, they say, oh, so they talk about the Mitanni tablets, right? Oh, look at the Mitanni tablets. They had these names of kings with prefixes and suffixes that were Indo-European. See, but what they don't say is the prefixes and suffixes that were Indo-European were found in the New Rig Veda. We are not found in the old Rigveda. Now, the problem is, and the chronology of the Rigveda is not something that any Indian has come up with. See, the chronology mm-hmm. of the Rigveda is something that linguists have come up with who are sitting in the West. Mm-hmm. So, when you look at the internal analysis of the Rigveda, if these people came from outside, all the prefixes and suffixes should fit into the old Rigveda because they got the ready made book in India. That's the claim. I mean, I've not made this claim. People make this claim who believe in the Aryan migration. So, if they made the Rigveda outside India, they got the Rigveda in India, every single name, whether it's the Avestan prefixes and suffixes or whether it's the Mitanni tablets prefix and suffixes, they should all go into the old Rigveda. But everything falls into the new Rig Veda. And this is where the confusion arises. So how do we work around that problem then?
1: Well, so, you know, I haven't read the whole Vedas. i some of them. Uh, they're long or they're dry. Yeah, um, they're very boring. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there's stuff in the Vedas pretty pervasively, which indicates to me that they were composed in the subcontinent in large part. Um, so the, the example that I like to give and I have before is that, Surya is in his chariot and he like waves to a parrot. There were no parrots on the step. (laughs) You know? So we know that we know Surya is in India. But Surya is an Indo-European motif. The sun god in the chariot, Helios, is an Indo-European motif, right? Um, So what I would say is like my own opinion is there's a lot of motif stories, um, structures in the Vedas and also in the Mahabharata, there's stuff in the Mahabharata which uh, the divine twins, um, the Ashvins. Uh, that's just common in German, Roman, and Greek mythology. Uh, there's also stuff in the Mahabharata. I was reading the Mahabharata, and um, there's a section that says like you know, intercourse during the day is sinful, basically. And I recently read the Iliad right before that. There's a there's a section in the Iliad that says the exact same thing. Um, so some of these customs and folkways are embedded in these stories, but the stories themselves evolve organically in local areas. So, like Hesiod's, uh, like um, the, the- uh, cosmogony, you know, in the eighth and ninth century uh, BC, It's informed by Greek religion, Greek folkways, Greek customs with an Indo-European overlay. And I kind of think of that the same for the for the Vedic texts. Um, I don't think that they were composed predominantly on the steppe. I think they were composed predominantly in in the Indian subcontinent. But I do think that they draw from a corpus of traditions that has ultimate origins in the step.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing, right? Then when it comes to common myths and religions and religious ideas, if you look at the natural evolution uh, evolution of uh, memes and religions, uh, the probabilities of common myths happening all across the world are very high, right? People, most ancient human beings used to worship nature. So the probabilities of them having these common myths are very high. Another case is that, you know, the Rig Veda talks about Ibha, the elephant. Now, how could that happen? And there are many cases now, even in the case of chariots. Now,
1: we we have But but I mean, as I said, I do think the Vedas were composed in India, so... If the Vedas were composed in the Indian subcontinent,
0: then if we do an internal analysis of the Rigveda, even if they are composed in the Indian subcontinent, a lot of these words that crop up, like I'll give you an example, ratha. Ratha is car, chariot. Now, what the Indologists and the linguists say is that ratha is specifically a spoked wheel chariot. Okay. If it is a okay. spoke wheel chariot, it has to come in a specific place in a specific time because the see if there was no chronology in the Rig Veda there is no case against the R N migration theory Mm -hmm. in fact I'll be the first one to admit that but there is a chronology in the Rig Veda there is a change of language in the Rig Veda and my disappointment comes from the fact that when these questions are raised you're not supposed to answer that you only talk about genetics and which is why I always read what you have to say but the point is that when when there is no answer David Anthony just you know, says, oh, Mitani tablets are old Indic. It's like, But the prefixes and suffixes are in the New Rigveda, Veda and there's no answer to that. There's not even a passing mention or reference to that, which is what disappoints me. But that's fine. Now, uh, let me take a few questions if there are. Oh, somebody has asked, Jay Shri Ram, has Rajib read Shrikan Talagiri's book? If yes or uh, yeah, if no, does he intend
1: to? Um, you know, I do, I, I do and... In- I think you sent me the PDF. Um, it's on my to-do. I have a lot of books to read, a lot of things to do. And it's just, uh, um, he, you know, no, yes, I do intend to. I don't know when I'm going to get to it. So that's the, that's actually the short answer. All right. Somebody has asked
0: question for Raze. Why has the World Health Organization, why is the World Health Organization not even ready to consider hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, or BCG vaccine treatments to COVID? Why has the why, why was the WHO HCQ study so subpar? I've not read the study of WHO, so I can't comment on it. But so somebody's asked this question.
1: Yeah, my understanding is like, to be to be frank, WHO is a political organization. Um, I'm not going to s- speak to any specific drug. I've heard some good stuff about ivermectin in particular, actually, um, just from friends. Um, the other two are a little bit more mixed. Um, WHO, the political organization, they're spreading anti-mask propaganda before they change their mind last year so um it's there's a lot of corruption in there is what i've heard from people who know people who worked at the who um, it's a cush job apparently in a lot of ways and so um why would we expect them to be experts like you're the expert at this point i, I don't i think everyone has to do their own research as much as possible just not trust institutions that's unfortunately true mm. that's what we so, see. So-
0: so somebody has asked how much of a damage is political correctness going to have on the scientific enterprise that's a good question
1: depends i mean um, in theory physical science should be pretty inert but now they're like trying to talk about black holes and how that's related to anti-blackness <laughs> uh, yeah you're laughing but it's true like it's like some of this stuff is like i'm like I just made that up. No, I didn't I actually didn't make that up. I didn't make that up. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's some of those like some of my scientist friends who are um on the same page with me, like tell me things that I'm just like, you just made this up. Like I can't believe this is true and then I click it and it's just as bad. I um, I think I think I you know, I think science is gonna be deeply impacted and hurt uh in terms of its credibility, but I don't think scientists really care. Um, a lot of them don't care. A lot of them like care about truth in the abstract, but the reality is they care about their salary and you know, they're humans. You know, the, I, I think it's, the institution is running its course. And be careful about trusting anybody on anything. I don't.
0: Uh, all I, right. So so just one question, because I, I was not there on Clubhouse yesterday. What was the thing you were so pissed off about yesterday? Something to do with the Byzantine Empire? What was that?
1: Uh, uh, There's an article in the Washington Post, which I subscribed to, about um, the, the roots of anti-blackness and transphobia in Byzantine history. No.
0: Somebody actually wrote that and it passed through the editorial muster.
1: That somebody is a professor in art history at UC uh, University of California, Irvine. He made $93,000 as a tenured professor in 2019. We are paying for <laughs> this. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a when I told I told somebody at a social event about this and they actually didn't believe me. They just couldn't believe it. And they went home and they checked in. They are like, I didn't believe you, but it's you're right, you know, it's that bad. So, it's the title is anti blackness and transphobia are older than we thought in the Byzantine Empire. Ideas of race and gender were deeply intertwined, blah blah blah. Um, yeah, like some of this stuff is just so weird. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it was like you know, complicated words, but um, European visitors to Constantinople often remarked on the city's racial diversity and competent on the darker skin of its emperors and peoples. Surprisingly, Byzantine sources were often silent on this (laughs) racialized difference, potentially taking it for granted in their cosmopolitan empire. Yet while Byzantines were not capital white in the eyes of their European neighbors, they also privileged whiteness in their descriptions of Feminine beauty and often contoured their own identity through the prism of anti-blackness. So, oh my god! I mean, it is so bad that this is what's happening. Apparently, he's a queer Latinx. Um, he wrote some. Someone sent me some thing he did, and it's all about activism. And, you know, these people are toxic. They're scorpions. They're vipers. But academics are not going to speak up against them at all. Uh, you know, it's um, the courage of men runs thin. You know, the, courage, the blood of the Numenor runs thin in the men of the West today. So no one will say a word. Uh, this guy will continue doing his thing. Students will be turned off. Our colleagues will slowly fall away and leave academia. And, you know, it will be left. He will be um, the whore of Babylon sitting on God's throne. At the end of the day, all these beautiful buildings and all these uh, hallowed traditions are going to be inherited by people like this. People like this—that's what I believe. So, and this man teach. This man is going to teach people. Oh, he does. He's an associate professor. He has tenure. He makes a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, I'm sure, like in his classes, he doesn't teach about Latinx or queer Byzantines. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I hope not. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Um, I don't know anything anymore. Uh, we live in a world of absurdity and um, you know, Western civilization is yeah. <laughs> that's what's how going nice. on here. How nice, how
0: nice. Okay, one more question, Raza. Somebody has asked, are the Hazaras and the Mongols same or genetically connected?
1: Somebody Hazara, to... Hazaras are about fifty percent Mongol. All they right. have Mongol DNA, they do look like they're descended from the soldiers of the of the uh of the Mongol, the Ilkhanate. All right, great. So, all right, uh, I guess it's time to wrap it up.
0: Razip, before we wrap it up, any, any new projects that you want to talk about uh, mm-hmm. to the listeners or viewers of this podcast?
1: Well, I'm going to have uh, a review. Uh, it's a live stream, but um, I think I'm going to have a review of a new book. Like um, It's called like Peace, Poverty, and Betrayal about the British Raj, a review and unheard. Just go to type unheard Raziv Khan. I think you guys will be interested in that. Um, it's not out yet, but it should be out this week. Uh so the next couple of days. Uh so that's what's going on. My Substack always, you know, check out my blog, gnxp.com. Go to Rezeeb.com. Um, I'm doing uh let me just check this uh, real quick. I'm doing a YouTube series. I know this is like you know, this is streaming, so I think you guys might be interested in this. Um uh so i am on this youtube thing that i'm guesting it's called the study of antiquity in the middle ages i've done a couple of youtubes i'm going to guest on that more um if you want to be and they're short they're like 15 minutes not like hour and a half long podcast or anything like that so check that out Um, i will be on the study of antiquity and the middle ages subscribe to that channel i mean if i'm not on there there's great stuff there too um the guy who runs it is a really cool guy he's really genuine i like him so, um, that's, that, that's another thing that I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, follow me on Twitter with Khan, if you're on Twitter and, you know, are, are, uh, making the choice to be in hell, you know, that's where I am. <laughs> that's where I am. Oh, uh, the one last thing I have started a new, um, sect of, uh, well I'll tell you afterwards. Then. So I'm just going to say this, uh, uh, just like my profession of faith. Uh, so that people know it's a big thing on clubhouse. You know what I'm gonna do. You know what I'm gonna do, right? Okay. You know what I'm gonna do. So, la ilaha illallahu Muhammadu Rasagulla. Okay. So this is called sweet meat Islam. Okay. Uh, the uh, the Rasagulla, the 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 meat of it, the sweet meat is the body of Muhammad, and the syrup is the blood, right? And so this is a, this is a new form of Islam. Um, it's very it's very delicious. Um, it's full bodied. It does give you type 2 diabetes, so you're going to go to hell a little earlier. But, you know, you're going to go to hell anyways, right? Um, so, And also, there's a lot of raisins involved, palate cleanser. So you don't get the raisins after you die and go to heaven. You get the raisins in this life. Um, so try it out. Um, you know, Jai Shri Ram and, you know, Muhammadu Ras- Rasulullah. So that's, that's, that's my um my contribution to the world right now. Oh, awesome. Um, and, and I'm going to be on Abhinav Prakash's YouTube. I'm sure a lot of you guys will know that. My mo- my mom loves Abhinav. She thinks he's such a a young gentleman. He's just, you know, he's just like, and she's like, and he has like gold gold cheeks, you know. <laughs> she's like, she's like, his cheeks are gold gold. He's so cute. And I was like, okay, mom. And she's like, I didn't know what you were, I didn't know what you were saying. But that little guy is so cute. So I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, guys.
0: So. Please subscribe to Raziv's Substack. I've already subscribed to it. He is a beautiful writer. I've always said this. He's one of the few people I love uh, reading all the time. He's got great podcasts over there too. So I've left the links to Raziv's Substack, Raziv's website, his blogs in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're going to be listening to this on SoundCloud or whatever the audio platform you use, or if you're watching this on YouTube, go on the subscriber description. And check it out and do follow Razib on Twitter too. Uh, If you like what I'm doing over here, please like the video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment there. Also, if you want, you can become a member of the YouTube channel. You can become a supporter on Patreon. You can send direct donations to Kushal Mehra at ICICI or by the Chawak Podcast merch. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste, take care, goodbye.